Well, uh, this series portrait, in case you haven't been here all these weeks, is this series where we're looking at um, distortions of the gospel or distortions of Christianity that have been prevalent over time, especially within evangelical settings like this. Um, uh, And we're looking at how scripture, considering each week how scripture kind of um, represents to us a clearer picture of who God is and then who we're called to be as God's people. And so this week we're coming to a, a subject that is a hard subject to talk about. It's the subject of suffering. It's, I say that because it's a subject that is personal for a lot of people. Um, and the reality for us is that in many times in the church, the church, here's the distortion, is not known for handling suffering and pain well, if you, if you know what I mean. So earlier this week, uh, I had told my wife Elizabeth about the topic, and she left this book on my desk that's, uh, with, a po- with a little 3 by 5 card on it that said, chapter 30 connects with your teaching this week. And this is a book that a group of women in our church are reading and uh, heard about but by a woman named Rachel Held Evans who actually died earlier this year tragically of a, just an acute illness. And um, this is a book called Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving, and Finishing, or Finding a Church. And she has a backstory that I won't get into, but this whole chapter is on healing. And so I wanted to relate this story to you because it was really powerful. Here's how the story goes. Claire loved her busy metropolitan church. It was where she connected with her best friends. See if you can kind of hear yourself in this. Where she met her husband, where she supported and served a homeless ministry, and where she fit. When her husband secured a job on the church staff and Claire learned she was pregnant, life seemed to be falling into place. Two months before the baby was born, our house flooded and we had to move out. Claire wrote in an email to me, one month before the baby was born, my parked car was hit and rendered inoperable. One day before the baby was born, he stopped moving. I didn't know that healthy full-term babies could be born stillborn, she said. I went to the hospital with hope and fear, but they never found a heartbeat. The church rallied, helping with funeral costs and meals, even providing a cabin for a weekend getaway for Claire and her husband. But when the couple returned to face down a long and arduous journey through grief, they found themselves alone. There are no worship songs for those mourning a traumatic death, Claire writes. There's no testimony for feeling forsaken when God does not intervene to save a baby. We wanted so desperately for our church and pastor to struggle with us, to question the fa- to face this ugly, brutal truth. But Claire's agony, she says, was met largely with platitudes. Bible verses, theological answers, and promises of better days ahead. And then Rachel L. Devin goes on and says this, I get a lot of emails from people like Claire, people who fit right into, into the church, right until the divorce, until the diagnosis, until the miscarriage, until the depression, until someone comes out of the closet, until someone asks a question, or an uncomfortable truth is spoken out loud, or yet another, as I just put it in my own setting this week, yet another school shooting takes the lives of innocent people and you're angry, rightfully angry, right? You come to the church until. And then what they find, Rachel says, is that when they bring their pain or their trouble or their doubt or the uncomfortable truth to the church, someone immediately grabs it out of their hands to try and fix it, try and make it go away. Bible verses are quoted, assurances are given, plans with 10 steps and measurable truths or results are made with good intentions, tinged with fear, Christians scour their inventory for a cure. But there's a difference between curing and healing, and I believe the church is called to the slow and difficult work of healing. We're called to enter into one another's pain, anointed as holy, and stick around no matter the outcome. 
We're called to anoint another's pain as holy and stick around no matter the outcome. So what do we do? (laughs) You know, that might bring up a lot for a lot of you. What do we do with that hard truth as followers of Christ and as his church um, gathered here in this corner um, that we have not often held suffering and sufferers well? Um, that instead of embracing them, we've run from them, that instead of sitting in, their, in the inexplicability of their suffering, we often have tried to fix it, maybe with good intentions. I know I have. Um, well, it's interesting about the passage we just read in John 9 is um, the disciples are in their own way kind of doing exactly the same thing with this man born blind. In other words, they're asking Jesus the big why question. Why, they say, is this man suffering? Hold on, Siri's trying to come up. (laughs) In other words, he shouldn't be suffering. We're uncomfortable seeing his suffering. We don't know how to deal with it, you know. And uh, we don't really want to be around him. And so let's just talk about it. Let's talk about his suffering. Let's explain it. Let's make sense out of his situation. Do you see the parallel here? And so uh, to that end, the best way probably for us to understand these verses we're going to look at and are calling to, to, to respond to suffering and embrace sufferers is to first of all notice the false understandings of suffering that are articulated in this passage by these disciples um, that are premised in their questions that they ask. Why is this man suffering? There's, there's some false assumptions there I want to unpack with you. And then we're going to look at Jesus' own understanding of suffering because he says neither. Neither this man nor his parents are the cause of this. And he gives his own understanding after he says that. And I want to look at that with you. And then we're going to look at how his understanding of suffering informs and shapes our response to suffering. So we're going to get there um, because that's, what we, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. We want to be a people that hold suffering and sufferers well. And so that's our task this morning. Explore the disciples' false understanding in verse 2, Jesus' own understanding in verse 3, and then the response to suffering that we've been given in verse 6 and 7. Okay? So first, the disciples' false understanding. There's two that are articulated at the beginning of the story uh, when the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, And now if you look carefully at their question, what you're going to see is it's a really loaded question, like the the defense is leading the witness a little bit. Uh, Because even even though they say they want to know why this man's blind and why he's suffering, in reality, there's assumptions built right into the question. They're obviously assuming an answer of some sort or another. Did you see that? Did he do something or did they? Did his parents do something? What? It's got to be one or the other. That's, those are assumptions built into the question that we can roughly break down into two categories, uh, the assumption of blame and the assumption of guilt. So the blame track looks like this. You know, if I'm hurting, I'm suffering, I'm in pain, you know, life's not going the way I'm wanting it to go or, or, or somebody out there is suffering in my life. There's somebody to blame. It's somebody else's fault. I need to find, we need to find a scapegoat, Right? Uh, so they say, was it this man's parents who did this to him? Uh, and that somebody might indeed be our parents. You know, I know this has been my story. Many of us, maybe inadvertently and justifiably, like we blame our parents. It's their fault, their inattention, their limiting beliefs, you know. I know that's a concern for me as a pastor with pastor's kids now. My limiting beliefs, is that going to cause suffering in my kids' lives? Their anger toward us uh, when we fail to meet their expectations, or when they fail to meet our expectations. They, they're the reason for my trouble. All my trouble, you know? And we make jokes about it, like I'm gonna, my kids are going to go see therapy, you know? Like, but really, it's a, it's a thing, right? 
We also, to broaden that scope out a little bit, do this as groups of people, whether that group is a system like a school or a government or a church or just the man, you know, like we say they are responsible for our trouble. They've dropped the ball. They've abdicated their authority with blatant disregard for those that they're supposed to care for. It's their fault. We got to get them. And we, we do this very often with the quote unquote others, like whoever those others are, whether conservatives or liberals, Republicans or Democrats, or particular ethnic, sexual, religious minorities, we, we often blame others. We, the rhetoric is this. We, the reason we're having problems we're having today is because of them. They're the problem. They've led us down this dark path. You know, they're the reason we're suffering. They must go. You hear this? You know, this is the reason. This is the rhetoric. We've got to hear this. That fueled the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. This is the rhetoric that fueled the genocide in Rwanda. This is the rhetoric that fuels much of our politics today. And we have to be very wary of. And so that's the blame track. And by the way, we do this with God. Very often we blame God. Because we give our life to God. See if this is you. You begin the journey of faith. Great and high hope for a life in God. And you know how it goes. It doesn't get better. <laughs> life doesn't get better. It gets worse. Or you think it gets worse. And, that, and so we say like the disciples, why is my life this way, God? <laughs> You know, I said I'd, I'd follow you no matter what, you know, and I, and I somehow edited out that part, you know, the cross, but it's okay. I see a lot of people out there far less deserving than me who go to church far less often than I do, who put far less money in the plate than I do, and they're living way better lives than I am. Why, God? Why is that? You know, did I, did I draw the short straw? So we suffer and we blame. Are you with me? There's also the guilt track and where the disciples say, well, maybe this man's born blind because of something he did. He sinned. And you know how, it's a good question, because how you can be born blind for something you did is, is a fascinating question. <laughs> You're like, how does that happen? But uh, they're probably asking, actually, did God foreknow that this man would be a selfish, sinful, wicked sinner, you know, and therefore strike him with blindness preemptively in the womb? Punishing him for all the sin. Like, that's actually, there's theology out there that says that. I'm not kidding. Um, that's not our theology. So, by the way, if you just, you know. But is this man a mess because of something he did or failed to do? This works out in our lives. There's this guilt track that says, it doesn't look outside for blame, doesn't point fingers for blame, but the guilt track looks inside. The guilt track says, I'm suffering, it must be my fault. I, I screwed up. I'm a bad person. Otherwise, my life would be going better if I weren't such a failure, if I could just do things right, you know? It's built on the assumption that if you're having a worse life, if I'm having a worse life, it's because I deserve it. I, I probably deserve this. If your circumstances are bad, you must have done something bad, or you must simply be bad. You're just a bad person. We say that, you know? And by the way, the, the blame track and the guilt track in some situations can be combined, and then it's really destructive, so, for example, uh, sometimes children of divorce face this. Um, you know, they combine these two, and it's tremendously difficult for these children, I don't know if this is any of you, to heal and to move forward after that divorce, that event. Like, studies have shown that children will not only blame one or both of their parents for that, they'll be mad at them, they'll, they'll look internally at the same time and be sure, they're sure that they did something to cause this event. It's my fault. There must be something wrong with me. Which obviously, you know, if you look at those studies, is tremendously lethal. There's, there's all kinds of problems that come along in life. Which is exactly why Jesus responds to the disciples the way he does. Neither. Like, 
Neither this man nor his parents are responsible for this blindness. At a level, he's just saying, he's, he's saying to attach and interpret that kind of meaning to suffering, yours or other people's suffering, is so cruel and so damaging. Like, don't do that. He's kind of like God in the book of Job after Job's friends for 38 chapters just trying to explain Job's suffering to him. God says, knock it off, which is my paraphrase. But that's essentially what he's saying. Like, neither. Like, wrong question, wrong assumptions. Just think, think more deeply about all the assumptions you're making in your life, which leads to the second point here. And Jesus' very own nuanced understanding of suffering. So we have false assumptions built that we build. Here's what Jesus says in response to that. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. So if you want to understand how nuanced Jesus is about this, you actually have to look in another passage and put those stories right alongside each other. This passage happens in Luke 13. Um, it's nearly a parallel story. There's to this story in John 9. In fact, it happens, part of it happens in Siloam where this man goes and gets healed, which I just think is kind of interesting. So there's these two groups in Luke 13 that are being discussed by Jesus and the disciples. There's a group of Galileans that are killed at some public event, and we don't know exactly what happens, but it's graphic. And then there's this other group in, in Siloam, uh, and this tower falls over them, 18 of them, and they die. You know this story? And uh, so the question the disciples ask Jesus about that passage is, you know, very similar to John 9. Did those things happen because those people were worse sinners? Like, did those 18 die because they were worse sinners somehow than everybody else? Did they suffer as a consequence of their sin? Do you see the parallel? And, uh, of course, Jesus, very similar to John 9, says, no, no, they didn't die because they were worse sinners or even because of their sin at all. And then he has this very peculiar statement when I look at with you in John 13, 3, where he says, I tell you, unless you repent, you too will perish. And if you know about repentance, it's not about just feeling bad about things and, you know, forgive me, Jesus. It's about actually moving in a new direction. Unless you repent, move in a new direction, you too will perish, which is kind of very practical. <laughs> if the tower's falling, move in a new direction, right? Get out from under the tower. So, but I think he's saying more than that. And, and I think what he's saying is, is, is see, he's saying what the Bible's always said about suffering, which is this, that suffering, the suffering of the world, the evil, the disease, the death, the miscarriages, all, the, all those things that were named, the divorce, all that stuff, none of that was originally part of God's plan or design. Never. never. God, in the, in, the, in the beginning of Genesis, the foundation for creation was paradise. We were built for paradise, which included wholeness, intimacy, joy, flourishing in every dimension, body, soul, spirit. Creation was singing of God's glory at that time. And, and, and of course, in a moment, with a snap of a finger, um, humanity, Adam and Eve, who represent the human race, they turn away from God. You know this story. They no longer lo- acknowledge the lordship of God. And as a consequence, everything in that ecosystem changed immediately. Things begin to fall apart. Uh, creation literally enters into a state of decay. The world no longer functions as it was intended to. Systems began to fail. You can connect this today. Uh, systems that were meant to support fail. Nature no longer works right. Climate change. <laughs> Bodies begin to experience disease. All of this begins to happen. And thus there's a sense in which the human race, the human, the human sins as a, whole, as a whole, led to suffering as a whole. Remember, Adam and Eve represent the human race, not just human individuals. So human sin as a whole leads to suffering as a whole. Does that make sense to you? And, and so suffering and death and evil and disease, they all enter the story of God as a consequence of sin. Not in particular, 
but in general, okay? And this is really important, and it's the reason Jesus says in Luke 13, you know, unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, he's saying, towers fall. <laughs> like, it's part of living in a fallen world. In a fallen world, towers fall. And so, there's nothing exceptional about those who had the tower fall on them, and nothing exceptional about those who didn't. Towers fall in a fallen world. And uh, that's important for us to understand as we understand Jesus' nuanced understanding of, of suffering. So uh, there's this guy named Nicholas Waldersdorf that I think you guys know from Midwest. And he's a Yale ethicist and um, Christian theologian who lost his own son when his son was 25 uh, in a climbing accident in the Alps. And very tragic. And he wrote this memoir called Lament for a Son, really small little book. Probably the best, if you're looking for a really helpful book, I mean, this book by Rachel Hold Evans has been really helpful to me this week, but Lament for a Son has been the most helpful book I've ever read on grief and suffering. Very, very poignant and poetic. And here's what he writes in there. He says, I've come to see that the Bible tells us more of the meaning of sin than of suffering. Of sin, it says that its root lies not in God, but in the will of the human. Sin belongs to us. You hear this? The gospel adds to this that our lovelessness pains God. It it grieves God. And then the good news comes. Jesus. God responds to this pain in forgiveness. Not avenging fury, (laughs) but forgiveness. Jesus Christ is the announcement. The master of the universe forgives. You need to hear that today. Whether you're in that blame track or that guilt track. The master of the universe forgives. And then Walter Schurz goes on to say, to the why of suffering, we just don't get an answer. We often don't get that. Our, it eludes us. Our net of meaning is too small. There's more to our suffering than our guilt, though. There's more to suffering than our guilt, which is an amazing insight for a man who knows something about suffering. Um, and precisely why Jesus turns around, declares to the disciples, back to John 9, neither. Like, the relationship to sin and suffering, he's saying, is far more complex and multidimensional and nuanced than that question. Ask a different question. Let's get there. Neither him nor his parents caused this. A declaration that leads to the second half of his understanding of suffering, which is where I want to land, which he says, this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So Jesus says that God's working in and through suffering. And and here's what that means, I think, at the very, very least. So there's this place in Hebrews 12 where the author of Hebrews talks about the the fact that when bad things happen to us, we can say, we can rest in insurance that God is disciplining us. (laughs) And you love that passage. That's Hebrews 12, 7 to 11. And and of course, you love it. I say that facetiously because discipline, wow, that doesn't seem (laughs) like a help. Does certainly sound like God's punishing, doesn't it? You know? And and, and, uh, especially because of how we understand and use the word discipline. Like we, we discipline people. Like I just mimicked hitting somebody. Like that's how we do it. But the Greek word for discipline is different. And it's a word that literally means to train. It should say that God trains us, not disciplines us. And it talks about, it's talking about instructions of your teacher. This is your word. But also care for the body. So if you've ever worked out, this is your word. And and, uh, it's really a word that means to, to work out, to go to the gym. It's the word we get gymnasium from. Gymnasium is a Greek word. And this is coming from that word. So years ago, I heard this sermon on Hebrews 12, and uh, the preacher gets up and talks about God being in God's gymnasium. And 
And uh, this person said that in Hebrews 12, when it uses that word, discipline, what Hebrews is trying to say is that when bad things happen to us, God is working us. God is training us. God is forming us. So the reality is that suffering is hard. It overwhelms us. No matter what suffering you're facing, it's not fun. Uh, It's painful. It's exhausting. Like some of you have lost people in your lives. That's a form of suffering. That's exhausting. It just takes all the energy out of your body. It's like going to the gym. (laughs) Like you put weights on the bar, you run on the treadmill or the elliptical. Why anybody wants to do that, I don't know. (laughs) Or you throw a medicine ball around for a while. Uh, And the more and more you do that, what happens? First of all, you feel weaker. You just feel weaker, unless you're just lifting little weights, like I am right now in physical therapy, because that's all I can do. You feel weaker. But the key is then, at the same time, in reality, you're getting stronger, right? With every repetition, every set, every time you show up, you're building endurance and capacity that you lacked previously. You're being shaped. You're being transformed. Do you get this? So somehow this idea that suffering, in suffering, God is working us, that suffering is part of God's greater work of transformation is what this is saying. The entire Bible is a story of transformation if you think of it that way. Um, There's suffering woven into all of it. It's a a story of transformation. God's committed to moving the entire cosmos. This is after Genesis 3. Your life and mine from its current state of rebellion and decay and hardship to an ultimate state of intimacy and joy and full flourishing and wholeness. That's what it means when Paul says in Romans 8, something that I think many of us struggle with, that though creation is presently groaning, there's this cosmic transformation on the horizon that's nothing less than the entire universe being shot through with God's glory. Everything changed. Everything healed. Everything transformed, including your life and mine. Because what's true at the cosmic level is true at the individual level. Because Paul says there in Romans 8 that in all things, God works for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So do you see this? That God, his great work is to use all the hard things in your life. All of it as part of a transformation process of the cosmos. Um, So Jesus says no to blame. He says no to guilt. He says, no to self-condemnation. Don't beat yourself up. Don't beat other people up. And know that God's at work. Just know deeply that God's at work. You might not see the fruit of that work now, but it's work that's happening. You know, it's work that's happening. Which leads to our response, the last thing I want to say here. Verses 6 and 7, it's really interesting to me that this blind man, in order to be healed, did you notice what Jesus did? I talked a little bit about this last Sunday. He put mud on the guy's eye. He made spit, or he made mud out of spit and dirt, which would have done what? Think of this. It made his situation worse. <laughs> like, he would, have been, he would have seen even less. I've heard that blind people can see light and shadows, or some can. And so if he, he's going to walk to the pool of Siloam, at least he would have had a sense of direction. And Jesus cakes his eyes with mud, What's that about Jesus? Like you just went from bad to worse. Why the mud? So I'm reflecting on this this week, and here's what came up in my mind. It's interesting, as you read the Bible, that in Jewish history, there's this rich tradition of anointing people for a purpose in the Bible. You read about this all through the Bible. So for example, 
You have the anointing of the high priest in Leviticus 4 and the sacred vessels in Exodus 30 for the purpose of worship and encountering God. You know, because God was this holy other, so nobody could go in God's presence. So you needed to be anointed. Uh, the anointing of the king, uh, David, you know, was equivalent to crowning him for the purpose of leading the nation. He was set apart. Uh, you have the prophets, you know, all through the prophets. Those people are anointed for perp- the purpose of declaring truth to power. You're going to have a hard job. Let's anoint you for that, because it's going to be hard. It was the custom of Jewish people to anoint themselves with oil as a means of just refreshing and invigorating their bodies for kind of healing. Uh, the sick were anointed. The dead were anointed. Jesus, prior to his death, you know the story, was anointed by a quote-unquote sinful woman with a jar of expensive perfume. He's anointed for a purpose, for the purpose of salvation. So anointing always happens in the Bible for a purpose. Uh, this, to announce a divine influence or presence in a person's life. Now, anointing in Scripture usually happens with oil or perfume. But apparently Jesus doesn't have oil or perfume, so he makes mud. And I think Jesus does this because he's saying what's more important is what's happening, not how it happens. He always does this. And he's basically saying to this guy, blinder than blind, now walk. Walk by faith, not by sight. Wash in the pool where your eyes are going to be opened into the the world and you're going to discover a new purpose for your life. You're going to discover a new identity. You're going to become a new person. (laughs) So Jesus anoints the man to heal the man, to prepare the man for the life of faith. That's what he's doing. An anointing that I believe God would want to do with us this morning. It would be sad to leave this story and not open ourselves up to that opportunity. And so here's what I want to do this morning, I want to invite us and I'll invite our worship team forward to experience something similar. It said of Jesus in Isaiah 61 that he'd come anointing the brokenhearted, the captives, those grieving and those who are blind. He'd anoint them, he'd comfort them, he'd bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of despair. That's Jesus' work in our lives. And I believe that's what the Spirit of God would want to do with us as we gather. Like, to respond and, you know, and just allow God to meet us in the space we're in and anoint us for the purpose he has for us. So here's how I want to do this. Um, In that book that I mentioned, Rachel Evans tells a story about a place in Tennessee called Thistle Farms. And uh, it's this community in Nashville that uh, there's women survivors of trafficking and prostitution and addiction that are... They could be part of this community. They make these anointing oils. And so I ordered some, um, these really cool little bottles. I've got one, Silas has one, and there's two over here by the cross. And they have this little roller ball in them, and they're scented. This one's kind of a woody scent. Um, and this isn't snake oil. <laughs> this is just oil. Um, and it's a way that they use in their community that I'd like to invite us into, to invite each other into the continued, ongoing journey of healing. Healing is not a once-and-done event. It's a thing that's hard to process through your life. And, and so sometimes it needs to be uh, revisited. You know, you've, you've had a hard event in your life, a divorce, a miscarriage, a, uh, a loss, a broken relationship, and, you, and this comes up. And God says, hey, let me anoint you for a purpose in that so you can take the next step. Or you're facing something right now, a hard truth. You're, you're wrestling with hard questions there is a broken relationship that you're dealing with. 
And God says, let me anoint you in that because you cannot face it alone. It's a pur- there's a purpose that I want to use you for in, in this restoring of the cosmos. Um, and so this would be a reminder to us, I think, that nobody's a lost cause. None of us are lost causes. Nothing in your life is a lost cause. God desires to make all of us whole, all of us. And so you're going to be invited as we sing in response to come and be anointed. I'll be over here and Silas will be over there and we'll have folks here and there praying for you, um, ready to pray with you if you want to. Um, and you can come carrying the need, your own needs, the needs of a neighbor or a family member, uh, a situation, a hard truth, a question. Like I said, something that may have happened long ago or something that's happening right now. Um, come and be reminded that Christ's ongoing work of healing and transformation in your life is happening now, now, now. And, and there's a promise on the horizon, the end, 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 to make all things new. Okay? Uh, we've placed some oil in the corner because uh, I recognize that maybe this might be hard for you to have somebody else anoint you. And so maybe coming with a, a friend, your spouse, um, or maybe your kids just came in and you want to do that with them. That could be a powerful time. And so you can go to the corner and, and just gather on the cross together. Um, you can be anointed on your hand, your wrist. We can anoint you on your forehead. There's a lot of different ways to do this, okay? There's no perfect way. And this is the first time we've done it. So it'd be fun to see how this goes. So might we just respond to God's slow, difficult work of healing, entering into each other's pain and anointing it, as Rachel Hall Evans says, as holy. Okay, let's take a moment to pray. God, we thank you uh, again for your presence and that in your presence there's healing Um, and that in your presence there's a promise uh, that all things are being made new. Um, As we look outside these walls, God, we, we, we need to claim that promise. There's so much darkness in this world. And so we come this morning asking Jesus to continue to, we ask you to continue to make, remake this world as you intended it to be, a place of flourishing. We ask that for our lives as well, God. Would you hold the broken pieces, the hard questions, the hurts? Um, Would you hold those in your care? And as we just are obedient to you, God, um, would you meet us in this space? We pray in Christ's name, amen.